Well, I was really touched a few weeks ago hearing uh, from Larry Price, who came during the meeting, um, the conference, uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, uh, just the kind of things that God will do with a sinner, um, which I am, and, uh, and I'm here to tell you about my own story. Now, I don't have any, uh, I've never done any hard time in prison, but I still have, still have my own story, and, um, and it's an honor, Rick, that you, uh, thank you for asking me to, to open today with this, so. Um, 2 Corinthians 10, 17 says, but let, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, that's what I hope to do here this morning with my testimony. So again, I appreciate the opportunity. I've asked myself from time to time what it really means to be raised in a Christian home. What is a Christian home? Can you, can you look them up in a real estate listing? What, what's a Christian home? I was, I was raised in a very wholesome household where we regularly went to church, but my mom and dad kind of emphasized Christian values in different ways. And so as I look back, I realized as a youngster, I was probably a little bit confused. I actually lived overseas in Saudi Arabia for quite a while, from, from uh, kindergarten through fifth grade. And I heard the gospel there. We were able to have church over there, actually. Uh, but, but I assumed, and, and just being naive and young, I suppose, that I was okay, uh, that there was no urgency to respond. It may have just been the way I heard it. Maybe the gospel was never presented to me in such a way that I knew I had to consider and seriously consider my response to it. I know I heard about God creating the universe, the flood, and Jesus walking on water, feeding thousands with the loaves and fish, and dying on the cross, but all these things were just kind of floating around in my mind, and at that time, Jesus was just sort of one of the main characters in my story. It just was, was kind of soupy for me when I was still a youngster, and I, I just didn't put it all together or bother trying to figure out what Jesus' role was in all of it. I, I don't know why, it just didn't connect for me until later. I was a happy child in a very solid, wholesome family, enjoying life, which may have been why I was somewhat naive as to the absolute necessity of surrendering one's life to Jesus Christ. So after moving back to our original home in Arizona, where we were before going overseas, I was enrolled in Scottsdale Christian Academy, and I began to realize that there was a whole lot more to being a Christian than I had originally thought. We had a Bible class as part of our schedule, and I remember that my Bible teacher would ask deeper questions of us students once in a while, and he asked me one time if I felt like I could give my testimony to someone if I needed to. I didn't have an answer. And I think I had a vague idea of what he was getting at, but his question got me thinking. And I now can look back and clearly see that that was the seed that was planted at that point in my life. Something was, something was stirring. Well, the summer following that year at Scottsdale Christian, I was sent, along with my older brother, to a Baptist summer camp, Prescott Pines Camp, up in the mountains north of Phoenix. That was the first time away from my parents for any length of time. I was lonely. I remember just feeling very uncomfortable and lonely, uh, uncomfortable socially. But the Lord had me right where he wanted me, I, I now can see with the 2020 hindsight. Throughout the week, I was very quickly coming to the realization that I had not really taken that final step, the only step that I really needed to take. Earlier in the week, I heard some kids talk about how before they had accepted Christ, they were kind of faking it as a Christian, not really saved, but just living life amongst Christians as if they were truly saved, which can be kind of deceptive, I found. And that got me thinking as well. I had been faking it, but I had not realized it until then. So the head youth minister at the camp gave a talk on the Wednesday night of that week. And that was July 11th, 1984. Before he began, he explained that there are many, many people in the world who are only 18 inches from Jesus. He explained how we are sinners, and he backed it up biblically, probably with passages like Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one, 
or Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't remember specifically, but I remember he, he laid it out, and I was listening. And he continued to explain the gospel and follow that up by saying that the mind or the brain is what receives the information as to what the gospel is, who Jesus is, what he did with his ultimate sacrifice on the cross, but it is the heart that makes the decision to truly accept Christ. It is the heart that can surrender our selfish nature to Jesus. It is the heart that is really confronted by the gospel's message, and the heart is what will respond one way or the other. And then he asked us to ask ourselves whether or not we had really surrendered our heart to Jesus. Were we 18 inches away from doing it? Let me show you. 18 inches, the distance from the head to the heart. It's exactly on. So. That was the message that made me realize where I was. I was 18 inches away from salvation. I got to a point where I really couldn't deny where I was at. I needed to go forward when the altar call was made, but I couldn't. I just couldn't that night. I saw my older brother go forward, but I told myself I needed time to process it. I think my brain was hanging on tight to the knowledge of the gospel, but was reluctant to give it over to my heart and to allow it to respond. But privately, in my bunk, a little later that night, while five or six other boys were giggling and goofing around in the cabin like they like to, I prayed on my own to receive Christ as my Savior, just a little personal moment I had with the Lord. I surrendered my life over to Jesus, and I know it was legitimate, I know it was real and sincere. Maybe I just needed to do it on my own terms after having time to think through it before making it public. But the next day, after sharing with a friend of mine at camp about my decision, I asked him if there would be another opportunity to go forward. I was kind of on the edge saying, I want to complete this. You know. He said that in years past at the camp, yes, there was usually another opportunity to walk forward and pray with a counselor about giving your life to Jesus. And that night, which was Thursday that week, July the 12th, 1984, I hopped right, right out of my pew after the message in my flip-flops. And interestingly, I, I don't remember at all what the message that night was about. But I went forward. I later prayed with one of the counselors and felt like I'd made it official. And I remember a very distinct peace that filled my entire being, and I just wanted it to go on and on. I, I knew there was a change just immediately there. Well, on and on, life continued. So for various family reasons, not in my control when you're 12 years old, you know, my siblings and I were enrolled in a public school that very next school year, so we were no longer in a Christian environment on a daily basis at school. We went to church, but I, I just wasn't interested at that point in getting involved in the youth program or anything like that. I just, I didn't have any immediate discipleship, and even though no one took me under their wing, I can blame no one but myself for it. At my new school, I was able to run cross-country and track, and I really found an identity there. I loved it, and I sunk my teeth into running. I became obsessive about it. I set my sights high in achieving something as a runner. I knew at a very young age that God had given me the running ability as a gift, but running and athletic achievement became a god in my life. I didn't even realize it. It was so slow and steady coming at me, but for a good 10 years, it was all I wanted to do. In high school and college, instead of desiring fellowship or choosing to have any kind of discipleship, I was out running. I thought I was doing something good, but in reality, I was steadily becoming a backslider. I didn't deliberately or even consciously take my eyes off of the Lord, but very slowly and steadily, I found myself self-absorbed into achieving my own success my own way. In college, I went to parties, often with teammates who were my friends at the time, but honestly, I didn't like going to parties. I didn't like drinking. I didn't want to drink, I didn't, and, but I did anyway because I wasn't walking with the Lord, and I didn't know how else to avoid doing that kind of activity. I still knew, though, through all this, that God's hand was with me, 
Years before, I had made a commitment to remain pure for my future spouse. And by God's grace, by his amazing orchestration and his relentless pursuit to win back my heart, he held up his end of the commitment, both in the purity aspect and with eventually showing me that he always had a grip on my life. In fact, it struck me just over the last couple weeks as we were learning here in Genesis about Lot's choices in his life and how he flirted with worldly temptations and ungodly people, that that's who I'd been living like back then. One hand of, one hand of my own in the world, the other hand held on to by God. But I certainly was not walking unashamedly at that time with the Lord. So I found myself at a, <clears throat> at a dead end in many aspects of my life. As college was drawing to a close, I had majored in geology, but I didn't know what I was supposed to do with my degree or my life at that point. My pursuit of success in running had clouded me from seeing God's direction insofar as a career was concerned, and it also left me with nothing worthwhile to show for it personally. I had wanted to make the Olympic team, win medals. I wanted to have all the glory, the whole smash. It didn't happen. But God had better plans. He always, had, he always does, doesn't he? Around the time college was coming to a close, while working at Target during the summer, I ran into a friend I had known in my junior high and high school days, someone whose life I had witnessed the Lord dramatically change for the better. From the inside out during her high school years, a cute, wonderful girl named Michelle Komar. She became so impactful beginning at this time in my life, I decided to bring her here today. <laughs> and her kids, they're here too. Yes, Michelle swung back into my life just after I had been at the end of my own selfish rope and as far away from God as he was willing to let me go. Importantly, though, Michelle came back into my life right after I had sent up some sincere prayers about wanting to come back to God and for him to bring the right spouse into my life. Prior to that, I'd been growing increasingly lonely. I could sense an emptiness growing in my soul. I knew something wasn't right. Michelle's encouragement to get my life back in line with the Lord, to follow him at all costs, to begin fellowshipping with other believers and to get back into his word proved to be the catalyst that God used to nudge me over about eight lanes of worldly freeway traffic back into his narrow carpool lane. So yes, Michelle, of course, is my wife now. And while we were dating, I had the chance to meet a ton of her godly friends and really see how the Christian life is to be lived. If I'm ever feeling dry spiritually, she's the first one to notice, and I cherish her constant prayers and encouragement. Well, a few years after being married, already having been a math teacher for a few years, I realized that I was still having trouble shaking that ongoing addiction of insatiable athletic achievement. Through different circumstances, I knew that it was still a stronghold in my life. But there finally came a time when I literally went to my knees one night and surrendered that God of athletic achievement to my Lord, to my understanding, jealous, loving, and patient God. Almost immediately, he began to use my formerly selfishly driven experience as an athlete to reveal himself more clearly to me. Less than 24 hours after I had finally surrendered my selfish running career over to him, I was given the opportunity to be the girls' cross-country team coach at the high school where I was teaching. And to make a long story short, the enormous success of the teams I coached and the fulfillment the Lord brought to me personally was so clearly a blessing straight from the hand of God, it was simply beyond measure and description. I found it literally infinitely more fulfilling as a coach than as a selfishly driven athlete, and I know the Lord had this in mind all along that he gave me an opportunity to serve him as I helped others instead of serving myself. So I began to know him as a very personal God, a savior first, but also a friend, a counselor, a teacher, a guide. I learned that he's a God who can use anything in someone's life and turn it around for good, like he promises in Romans 8.28. 
He's an omniscient, detail-oriented God that is waiting for us to surrender every aspect of our lives to him. And that became very, very real at that time. So I've probably shared more than just my testimony of becoming a Christian because I found that it's so important to not only take the first step towards the salvation that is found only in Jesus, but the next step and the next step and the next step. And it's that ongoing sanctification process and the development of a beautiful relationship with the Lord Jesus that I have found fascinating, and I still do. Let me just summarize quickly by sharing that I've been baptized twice. The first time was during my backsliding years in college. I was about 20. I very reluctantly agreed to be baptized with my younger sister and my older brother when they suggested that the three of us be baptized together. It wasn't my idea, but I didn't know what to do when the offer was presented to me by to me by my siblings. I went along with them and was baptized, but for years and years, it bothered me that I had not initiated my own baptism. So it began to really gnaw at my soul, and I wondered if I was ashamed to be baptized. And I didn't like the fact that I was questioning this within my heart, and it grew and grew until I had to deal with it. So 15 years after that first baptism, which wasn't that long ago, I took the opportunity to be baptized again. But really, that was for the first time from strictly my own initiative. If I've learned anything from trying to live life my own way without surrendering to his will, it's that it's absolutely not worth it. God's word says it's best, and I'll finish with this familiar passage from Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. You probably know it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. In my simple mind, this simple passage does it for me. So thank you for listening. Let's close by praying before Rick speaks. Heavenly Father, I thank you that I have a story. I thank, that, thank you that you are my Savior, that you did reach down and grab me, show yourself to me in the way that you know I would understand. Your gospel mes message is simple, but your blessings are many, and they, and they go on and on. You do not move. We need to draw closer and closer to you. And Lord, I just thank you. I thank you for the opportunity to speak, but also just for the salvation found only in your Son, I pray for all of us as we go forward that we would draw closer to you, Lord Jesus, that you would uh, work out in us our salvation as we continue just uh, waiting for the day of the Lord, that you are there, Lord. We trust you. We commit this time to you. And in Jesus' name, I thank you. Amen. Thank you, Jeff. Oh, if you will, turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. In my version, uh, it's the New, New King James Version, it reads like this, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. In the New International Version, it's, uh, it's that it's, that's whole one whole sentence. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, it's a mutual submission that believers owe each other, that we submit to each other, and that's what Paul is exhorting the Ephesians to do. And it really all goes back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. It, it really, everything after 
the first three chapters of Ephesians are, this is where God has put you as a believer. You know, here you are, a son of God. Here you are redeemed by God's, by Jesus' precious blood. Here you are raised to the heavenlies. You're going to, you have an inheritance. You're going to, you're going to see him face to face. You're going to be with him forever. And you're going to share in his glory forever. See, that's where he's put us. Now he says, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And then what follows then here in chapter 5 is this exhortation, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it's a characteristic of those who are trying to walk worthy. Last week, uh, uh, Davey uh, had us all sing that great hymn. It's one of my favorites, actually. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And th that speaks of our loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ once we're saved. Now, this verse speaks to our relationship with each other, submitting to one another in the, out of reverence for Christ. And Paul then goes on, gives three examples, and that's what we'll cover in the next 30 minutes. The three examples he gives of submission that he feels are important. The first has to do with marriage. A Christian marriage has these characteristics when it comes to submission. Then uh, the next is um, uh, children, a Christian family. This is a characteristic of a Christian family, the relationship between the children and their parents. And the last is slaves to masters. Here's submission when it comes to being an employee to your boss. And that's the way I'll speak to it. Uh, and you're an employee, how do you relate to your boss? And all this time in, in these relationships, Paul takes very practical examples here. It's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle for me. I mean, it's a struggle for everybody. Uh, especially when it comes to you and your boss, okay? That relationship, how do you submit? What does it mean to submit? And not only that then, so that's the struggle, and it's through that learning submission and obedience that God is working something in our lives. Uh, a simple example, if you're a, a kid and you're rebellious and reckless in your life, uh, not much good will come out of that. And so Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And so that relationship then is a picture of a Christian family. And to go off that, you're no longer a Christian family, you're just like everybody else. So we're going to start out with uh, the first, the, 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 the marriage. I've talked about this before, so this might be a review for many of you. Starts out in verse 22, and I'll just read a couple verses and we'll speak to it, and then I'll read some more verses and speak to that. But it starts out, verse 22, Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So that's the exhortation from, from Paul. Be, uh, wives, be submiss submissive to your husbands. 
In each of these examples, he's going to speak to a particular types of particular people. Here he's talking to wives. Next he's going to talk to children. Next he's going to talk to slaves or employees. Okay, and uh, then he's going to speak to that person in authority. This is the limits. This is the guidance for you in authority uh, to make this work as a Christian marriage, as a Christian family, as a Christian uh, employee uh, employer relationship. Okay. Uh, he's going to speak to it that way. So the first comes to the wife. Um, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And he, he uses this discipline, or it's not discipline, there's authority in everything that we relate to in life. Um, I submit to a policeman uh, uh, here in Claremont. I submit to a fire person, fireman or a, fire, a fireman who's uh, trying to get to a fire. I submit to them. It's for my own good. Uh, authority is good. I submit to the government. Um, we submit to the elders. Excuse me. We submit to the elders. Uh, Jesus Christ is the right hand is at the right hand of God the Father, but under Him are angels and saints. Okay. There's 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 an authority. Uh, that's that's life. And learning how to deal with that to me is the biggest struggle of my Christian life. How to deal with authority, you know. And so He's going to teach us here in uh, these particular real examples what we should do and what the authorities should do as well if they're, if they're believers. So the first is the wife, and there's several reasons for this. Uh, first of all, a wife will submit to their husband uh, as to the Lord out of reverence to Christ because they're Christians. That's, uh, that, that's the first reason for uh, obedience and submission. It's obedience to Christ. That's what he would have you do for a Christian marriage. Uh, and Paul goes on to say this is also the picture because of the order of creation. Men were created first, the woman next. And next is a big one. It's the model of Christ and the church. So there's all these reasons he's presenting it this way, that a wife should submit to her husband. But the most important reason is it's out of reverence for Christ, and he's, he's trying to bring us into this a Christian marriage. The next is even more important. I think if you're a, if you're a wife and you hear this or you're planning to get married, you know that th this day and age, this is just so far fetched. Um, I don't know if I should share this. I guess I will. Uh, this woman, Dolores, was. She could, she could speak to her husband like a barracuda. I mean, just cut him right down. And he went along with it because he was, uh, just wanted peace in the family. Not because he was a coward. He just wanted peace in the family. And um, she said to him, I want you, I'm having my lady friends come tomorrow. The ladies club's meeting at our house. I want you to stay in the closet the whole time until, until the last woman leaves. And uh, he said, yeah, he, okay. Uh, <laughs> and so they come. And the lady started bragging at, the, at this club how they can really be the masters of their house. And Dolores says, well, look, I, I have my wife, husband under such control. I'll, um, he's in the closet. I'll tell him to come out, and he'll come out. So she says, Bob, come out of that closet. And nothing happened. So she shouted louder, Bob, come out of that closet, closet now. Nothing happened. 
So then she screamed as loud as she possibly could, Bob, you get out of that closet. And all you could hear was a muffled cry, no, I'm going to show you who's the master of this house. <laughs> That's a world's view of marriage, okay? Uh, and, but here, so that, that's the woman in submission, okay? It's a picture of a, of a godly, a Christian marriage. But then he levers, uh, here's the responsibility of the man, the husband in this relationship. And we have to read this for this to work right. Otherwise, it doesn't work. It's this, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present to her to himself, present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So for this to work, the husband, the one in authority, the headship, so to speak, his responsibilities in a Christian marriage is to love his wife, love his wife, just as Christ also loved the church. So to what extent did Christ love the church? He gave his life for her. He shed his blood for her. He walked, uh, it's, it's a totally a giving relationship, okay? He's looking out for what's best in the church. So a husband is looking out what's best to make my wife grow to be all that God wants her to be. That's my responsibility as a husband, to show that I love her. Now, if you're a wife, how do you respond to that? Well, you listen to that, right? You respect that. You honor that. And that's, that's the relationship in a Christian marriage. The worldly headship goes like this. I am your head, so you must take your orders from me and must do whatever I want. Godly headship is this. I am your head, so I must care for you and serve you. It's expressed through sacrifice. That speaks to our Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? What a beautiful picture. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Not only one time, but he's doing it. It's a continual process. The one time was at the cross. He, he gave his blood. He gave his life up for the, for the believers. But it says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. As Davy talked about last week, and as Jeff made reference to the sanctification process, the fact that God is working in us something that's better today than it was yesterday. Okay, He's working in our lives for something that's precious. He's going to, it says here, He's going to sanctify and cleanse her by the washing of water by the word. He's going to set, God, is, through the Lord Jesus Christ, is taking his saints. And he's cleansing them uh, uh, through the word of God, okay? I don't know about you, but for me, when I, when I read the word of God, even if I'm just reading it and not really taking it in, it still has a cleansing effect on my mind. It's like a filter, you know, I'm like cleaning out the filter. And I think that's, that's even when you're not, you know, there's a time to memorize scripture, and especially if you're young, there's a time to memorize scripture. Uh, but sometimes you get a, uh, in a rush of life, and all you can do is read it. You read a chapter, you read a psalm, 
and you know, then it's whoosh, out the door you go, off the work you go, okay? But that's important, that's a, a filtering, that's a cleansing effect in that. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. So the time is coming for every believer will stand before the bima, the judgment seat of Christ, and he'll judge those things. Some things were done in the flesh, other things were done for him. And we'll be judged for that, and it's over. Then he's going to present to himself a glorious church, no spot or wrinkle. Uh, the cleansing has taken, the judgment has taken place, the cleansing. It will be holy and without blemish. And so in verse 28, we read this. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Those are precious words here. Uh, well, first of all, verse 28, love your own wives as you love your own bodies. Uh, we often share this, that when you're married, there's one person plus one person, and the result is one person, okay? One plus one equals one in marriage. Uh, contrary to what Jeff might teach his students in arithmetic, uh, one plus one is not two, it's one. And so I look to my wife, we're one. So I take care of my body, she's part of my body, you see, we're all one. And so I, I take care of her because she's part of me. We're together. We're, we're together in this. It's, it, I wouldn't want to put it like this, but we're a team. But we are a team, you know? We're working as one unit, so to speak. And that's marriage. But no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. That word nourish means if he, if he, God feeds the church with the word, okay? A, a, a precious verse here that when you need it. Uh, somebody comes alongside, you're nourished by that person's um, counsel and encouragement, uh, wisdom. You're it's, it's a nourishing process, so we need to feed our wives in uh, the things that are good, that'll make them grow to be whatever God wants them to be, as much as God wants them to be. And then the word cherish is a precious word. The picture is warmth, and you picture a hen with their chicks around her, hugging them to her, okay? Uh, that's cherishing, that's what it means. This, this, this bringing warmth uh, makes something soft. When something gets warm, it gets soft, and that's cherishing. So you're tender to your wife. How can a wife not appreciate that? She's willing to, you know, submit to that, right? I would. But that, that's what the work, you need both parts. The authority of figure has to have this kind of a love that's willing to help that person grow and uh, his, his partner in life grow and cherish her, love her, whatever brings warmth to the relationship to do that. So that's one example, there are three of them. The next is, 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 is the children in respect to their parents. So let's read Ephesians chapter 6. Oh, let me just do one thing. In verse chapter 5, verse 33, Paul summarizes all this. I'm not going to go through the whole thing because there's too much to cover. But verse 33, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Surveys have been done 
on what's most important to the wife. Okay, you have a bunch of women together. What's most important to you? And they list things like respect and love and uh, a gift every now and then, you know, and money. <laughs> anyway, top of the list is always love for the women. Do this with the guys. Okay, what's most important to you? Well, fishing or going boating or going running uh, or uh, show me respect, love. Top of the list, it's always respect. It's never love. What a man needs is respect. And so Paul just puts it so plainly here, yet it's proven by surveys What's most important to a woman is love, the caring kind of love. I know the affection is important because that softens, that softens the relationship, but it's this giving love that's so important to a woman. And for a man, it's respect. It's not demeaning the husband in front of other women, okay, or making him, making him look small like Dolores did okay, in, the, in the story I just told you. That's the worst thing you could possibly do. It doesn't show your, your spouse any respect. What a man needs is respect. I just thought I'd share that. So now we get the children. <clears throat> Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. The promise is in the Ten Commandments. It's true, it's written there. It's the first commandment in the Ten Commandments that has a promise that you live long. And it's, it's, that's right, because you just picture someone learning submission and living under authority compared to some kid who's rebellious. Uh, where's he going to wind up? Or she going to wind up? And not so good. Okay, it just makes sense. So that is the second area we have to learn submission. Um, and also to honor your father and mother. Now, look, you, I'm, no, I'm no kid myself, but my mother's still alive, okay? So here's this commandment. Here I am. My, I'm not going to share my age, but I'm an older person, right? I still have an older parent. Am I to honor them at this point? Am I a child? Uh, yes. In that sense, I have to honor my mother and my father, right? And that just means you show them respect. Now, I think this is really must be difficult for a person whose parents say were drug addicts or violent or drinkers or you know whatever that must really be difficult and quite frankly I don't know how to answer the question how do you honor them well you have to honor them because they were your parents you have to show them respect as simple as that you don't have to do what they tell you if it's wrong uh, if it's against the word of God, and it's true for all these three examples, you know, somebody always throws this up. Well, gee, what if my boss is a crook? Or what if my parents were crooks? Or, you know, what if my uh, husband is an adulterer? You know, they always, people always kind of throw this up to you. Uh, but for your parents, you still have to show them respect. That's hard. I mean, that's something you have to learn. You have to honor them simply because of who they are. They're your parents. And there, might, there must be something about them that you can honor, right? That's the way I look at it. There's, there, and that's what I take time to figure out. What can I honor here, okay? And I had no problems doing that with my parents. Uh, just, I, but I could picture 
other people having difficult problems with this. What is there about my parents that I can honor? They might have been dictatorial, you know, you must do this. But for this to work, Paul says this in verse 4, And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. For this to really work well in a Christian family, first, fathers, you don't exasperate your kids or overcorrect them. You have to be tender and loving towards your kids. Okay? Then you'll get this natural response. They'll want to obey you. So again, for this to work, there's something for both sides here, both the parents and the, the, the kids. Just like in marriage, it has to be both sides to really work right. And here with the family, it has to work just the way it has to work to be a Christian family. The last example here regards to bond servants. And this is, was really the most important thing that I wanted to speak to, but all these are good reminders for each of us. That has to do with bond servants. They were slaves. And they, the, their masters owned them. They owned their bodies. And if they were sent to go work in the rice fields where there were rats and snakes, they had to go. Okay, that's just the way a slave was treated. That was their job. They were owned. And so Paul, and you can imagine a bond servant hearing this kind of a message, a slave saying, you know, I have to, I have to live under all this discipline. Man, I don't know if I can do it. But he says, verse 5, bond servants, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Not their spiritual masters, but their masters here in this life with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. So he's telling the slaves that you, when, you, when you see your master and he tells you what to do, you have to picture that you're serving Christ. That is difficult because we apply it today to ourselves in our jobs with our bosses and everybody has a boss. Even if you're a CEO, you have bosses, right? That could be the board. You have, you have a boss. Nobody's out there doing their own thing. Um, it could be your customers if you're an entrepreneur. But you have bosses who tell you what to do. Anyway, the point is, when we see our boss, we have to picture as if Jesus was standing next to that boss, man or woman, and obey them. And not only obey them, but it says here, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ, as to Jesus. You know, we, I have this dividing wall in my mind. This is what I do as a, in my job. This is what I do in the church, okay? Men, men are good at this. We secularize everything, okay? And all these compartments, here's family, here's... You know, and we just change roles as we go from one place to the other. It's easy because mentally, men can just put it all in different compartments. Uh, women have it all tangled together. But, but it's easy for me to you know, do this, then uh, you know, an hour later be doing something else, and the two never meet, okay? But what Paul is saying here is that Sunday, we're here, we're remembering the Lord, we're reading the word together, encouraging each other, singing hymns. 
and Monday, well, the Lord was yesterday. Now today's Monday, I have to go to work. They say, no, Jesus is there, your boss. You're serving the Lord just as well there as you did on Sunday, uh, on Monday as well as Sunday. You're doing it as unto the Lord. And that's a difficult thing to learn. I was sharing with some friends uh, a couple weeks ago that I worked for a tyrant. Um, and he had a reputation to the whole government bureau uh, when I started working for him. I, they, people warned me about it when I started to work for him. When I was thinking about working for him. But, you know, after I left working there and came to work at JPL, it was, it was, it was in Washington, D.C., in the Department of Energy, I realized he did me a tremendous service. I learned to work for a tyrant. His word was God. You know, whatever he said had, had to be done. I mean, it's just no, you couldn't cross this guy. Uh, he, was, uh, he was ruthless. He was good. Yeah, he was a good bureaucrat. He was excellent. Uh, but I learned to submit. And that's the whole purpose of this. And if you're working in a situation like that, you have to honor the boss, okay? We have to respect him or her. You have to respect them and picture that you're serving them at the same time you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, just as you would uh, be obedient to Rod or Dave as the elders, or if you're uh, in Awana, uh, to the leaders of Awana, or in Women's Discovery, uh, honoring the leaders there the next day when you're working as a secretary or as an analyst or as a nurse or a doctor, you serve your boss. You're learning this discipline. You're learning discipline through this experience. And that's what God is trying to work into each of our hearts, obedience and discipline. Uh, and, and we'll prosper through it. He says here, verse 6, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord, not to men. Our employer is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling us here. It's the Lord Jesus Christ is our employer. And, you know, that blind, we're blinded to that sometimes. We're so occupied with, you know, things we have to do that we really don't want to do, but it's part of the job. But you have to remember, it's to the Lord that we're working. And we're learning through this whole process. And this is the most amazing verse, verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. So I take this verse as saying the following. Um, if I do a good report for my boss, it is if I had done a good report for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reward I might have gotten for doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ is the reward I will get for doing it for my boss, as unto the Lord. Hmm. Makes you want to do your best. And that's what Paul is saying. You do your best because you're doing it as unto the Lord. So here we have then the employee, the Christian employee. That's a whole subject in itself. It's a fantastic subject. And Paul's giving you the first lesson in being a Christian employee. That is, when you see your boss, that person is really Christ. You, you're an employee of the Lord Jesus Christ in your job. 
Then he also gives direction, if you're a Christian boss, how you should treat your employees for this to really work well. But in any case, even if your boss is not a believer, you still have to take this approach. Now, you'll, you'll say, well, what do you want if the boss tells me to do something illegal? Okay, we know you don't have to obey that. Uh, the, the, you're following the Lord's will, and you have to present that in the most diplomatic way you can. Uh, you're not asked to do things illegal, immoral. But it says, verse 9, and you masters do the same thing to them, giving up threatening knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So you can picture a guy who's the boss, you know, he's the master of his domain and he is, uh, he has responsibilities as well if he is a servant of the, if he's a, if he's a, if he's a believer. Okay, you know, you've seen this plaque, it says, you know, the beatings will continue until morale improves. Have you seen that? <laughs> That's the world's approach, right? Uh, giving up threatening. Now, it does take skill to be a, a person in authority. Uh, and uh, Normally, my position is trying to be a good employee. Um, but I know there are times, sometimes you're put in a position of authority and it could be as a parent, it could be as a husband, it could be as an employer, employer, and you have to have a care for those who are working under you, you see, and a love for them, willing to give yourself. There's a word, uh, two words combined together you often hear called servant leadership. And you know, it sounds so strange, you put those two connected because you, you Leadership is one thing we picture, servanthood is something else, but to combine those together means that you're looking out for the interests of those who are under your authority. And that's the point in all these things, these three examples that Paul is giving. We learn to be servant leaders. And it's true, you know, if, if you have, let's take a, dis a women's discovery group, you have a responsibility for those who are under your care, you see. You're not just the person in authority. Uh, bossing everybody around, right? You're, 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 you have a care for them and an interest in their growth so that they can be all that God wants them to be. And you're going to do everything you can to make that possible. Our time's gone. Appreciate it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time this morning to uh, talk, uh, to discuss this, uh, this struggle we all have in learning submission. Uh, help us to picture our relationships with those in authority uh, as uh, one of learning uh, obedience to Christ, learning discipline, that we wouldn't be reckless, that we wouldn't be rebellious, but be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to put him first in our lives in all respects. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel message that Christ died for sinners according to the scriptures. We thank you that he lives and that he cares for us, uh, nourishing and cherishing us. Bless each of us here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.